Limerick's musical tradition is well documented. Not so well known is the theatrical history of the city, yet Limerick has an old and strong theatrical tradition. There was a theatre at Petersell in the 18th century where Shakespeare was performed. Then there was the famous little theatre and music hall called the Gaff. Heathy's Playhouse was near Playhouse Lane, now called Little Gerald Griffin Street. And Limerick's most famous theatre, the Theatre Royal, was built in 1841 and was the centre of the city's theatrical and musical life for many years, right up to 1922, in fact, when it was destroyed by fire. The Tivoli and Lyric Cinemas were used from time to time for concerts and musicals, and up to recent times the Savoy Cinema was popular for various entertainments. Kevin Hannan is a Limerick historian who has made a study of the city's old music halls and playhouses. Well, you had a, you had a theatre at a very early stage in, in a very novel setting. The old dormitory belonging to the Canonesses of St Augustine, which was situated at Peter Cell, just inside the walls of the city. Parts, part of the walls there, they still remain. There was a theatre set up in the old dormitory there, and it went... It was going well for quite a while, and they, they played Shakespeare there and other popular uh, uh, dramas for quite a long time. And uh, the theatre moved from there to Charlotte Key, and Charlotte Key had a very long association with the theatre until the gaff finished as a, as a theatre in 1916 and the Tivoli Cinema was set up there. And the Tivoli Cinema went up right, I think, into the 50s. And uh, we had a theatre also at Gerald Griffin Street, which was known as Heapy's Theatre. And uh, there's a public house there now, Hayes's Public House is on the spot. It is at the corner of Gerald uh, Griffin Street and Playhouse Lane, aptly named. But uh, the name Playhouse Lane is now more or less unknown, and the street is Little Gerald Griffin Street, which is less colourful than the original name. But uh, the patrons there had to go to the coachmaker's shop, which was underneath or in front of the theatre, a man named Gobbins who was a coachmaker there, and uh, the patrons, usually of the upper crust at that time, walked to the shavings from the wood as they went to the, their boxes in the theatre. And that theatre was went away a few years before the theatre royal was established in Tenpostis, sometime a little before the famine. What type of shows did they put on, put on in these 18th century Limerick theatres? Well, we, we are told that they had concerts together to enliven dramas and in between, and they had singing in between, uh, between the, the various parts of the plays when they had to remove sets and replace them again. Uh, the patrons were regaled with singers, and that uh, tradition went right up to the end of the theatre aisle. At the Theatre Isle, uh, the patrons went to the Theatre Isle irrespective of the quality of the show that was on. Usually they had very good shows because they were a very discriminating uh, audience. Uh, Limerick were always traditionally known as, as, as uh, very severe critics. And they went there with the, with the knowledge that they could have uh, very good entertainment in between uh, during the intervals. During the intervals, usually the entertainment was provided by a number of well-known singers from the gods. The gods were usually uh, frequented by the working classes and you had a good element of the working class attending the theatre in Limerick always. And some of them were very knowledgeable in the theatre as well, although they were only ordinary workers. And these people 
uh, they had amongst them very good singers from time to time and the the regular theatre goers went to the theatre ostensibly to see the show or to to partake of the entertainment as advertised but they loved to hear some of the singers that uh, performed from the gods particularly a well-known character in Limerick was very well liked and a very well loved entertainer he was known as Mauser Fitzgerald Mauser Fitz for short he was a pork butcher but we haven't any record of his voice but from what we hear from all the, the critics down through the years and all those who heard him was that he was as good a baritone as ever they heard and uh, Mauser had a son also who was a famous boy soprano in the 30s the late 20s and the 30s and uh, he filled St John's Cathedral every Sunday with, with, the, the, with the, the wonderful voice that he had and uh, Joe, when he grew to manhood, he still had a nice uh, baritone voice and is happily with us again today. In happy moments day by day The sands of life may pass in sweet but tranquil tide away from time's unerring glance. Yet, oh, so bright, so bright to deem remembrance we Reposed in the flight of years we trace his dear or a dearer than more which in the flight of years we trace is dearer dearer than them all (coughs) dearer than them Joe Fitzgerald, you're the son of Mauser Fitzgerald, or Mauser Fitz, as he was known as in Limerick. Why, first of all, was he called Mauser Fitz? Well, uh, what my mother told me anyway was that um, he was an altar boy in the Augustinian, and um, he mispronounced some Latin word, and the, the rest of the altar boys heard it, and I can't tell you exactly now what the word was, but... He became known after that as a, from a very early age as the Mauser Fitz. His actual name was Joe Fitzgerald, but that stuck to him to, up to the day he was deaf. Could you tell me what he mm. did with his life? What was his? What did he do? Well, I think from from from, from his grandfather now was head gardener of, of the Presentation Convent, and. Um, I don't think my father was ever that way inclined to do gardening or anything, but I think from a very early age he was uh, 
musically inclined. He used to take great pride in, 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 in going before the big audience in the old Faith Arrival. It was the place in Limerick at the time. And I could remember him rehearsing above before he got on. And my mother then was very musically minded also. And she'd have to she'd have to give the judgment as regards what way he what how he what song he should sing and all this sort of but he stacked up. And she said, No, I don't like that song. Sing the bandolero. But the bandolero was I won't sing the bandolero. Can I sing this one or not? But all this had gone on then, like, and I was very young at the time, and this had gone between them. Eventually, anyway, they'd started out between themselves. So then they'd hit down, but there's an old pub over across the road there now called the Shakespeare. And before the artists went around, no, he was only in the audience this time now, like, you know, before they um, went into the, the old Theatre Royal, they all went up in the gods. And they all sat around whilst the opera was being performed, you see. But prior to going in, prior to going into the, the old theatre royal, they'd all meet all these singers and everything else inside there. Like, and so next, the curtain comes across in the old theatre royal, and then the show began. So the first part of the show closes down, and the old uh, custom that time then of some singer was asked from the gods, you know. And this night, anyway, my father was asked the Moser, Joe, and he was invited by the opera company. And I'd love to, to think that it was either the Boyer Opera Company or the Elsa Grime Opera Company. But the manager came on stage when he heard my father singing during the interval, and he went away eventually. Would that man come down from the gallery, please. I'd like to see him. So he went up, my father went up and joined that opera company then afterwards. Around the beginning of the present century, the Gaff Theatre was built by the Courtneys, a well-known theatrical family of the time. Melodramas, musicals and concerts were staged here. There were four army barracks in Limerick at this time and the Gaff was the soldiers' music hall. It was very much a working man's theatre and club, as opposed to Theatre Royal, which catered for the middle and upper classes. Myra Jennings is a member of a Limerick theatrical family and has made a special study of the Gaff. The Gaff Theatre in Limerick. Well, now, uh, that was actually founded by Courtney's in 1901. I mean, I could be wrong about the date, but I think that it was around that time. And that went on for many years. And then, when the Courtney's uh, went out of it, the Baileys took over. He was a Clarence Bailey. And um, uh, he was married to Carrie Ferguson. And they had uh, five children, I think, four girls and one boy. And the boy who is alive today, Harry Bailey. And they carried on a wonderful tradition in old-time musical. It was really absolutely fantastic. I mean, they came from all parts to see it. But, of course, being in the Latin Quarter... It was sort of detrop to go there. So people had to go sort of incognito and they had to pretend that they didn't know anybody else and that sort of thing. But they put on some wonderful dramas, Murder at the Red Barn, The Colleen Bawn, all those beautiful things, um, Rob Roy, uh, 
what you may call upside down um, Lord Thornton right they would put on that as a straight play one night and then the following night that would be reversed and an old member a big fat member would play Lord Thornton right and they would turn it into a farce it was absolutely terrific but what was absolutely really good was the fact that the audience there was a liaison between the audience and the actors on the stage so much that when they would be uh, uh, Danny Mann would be uh, throwing the Colleen Bourne into the, the lake they would shout up oh please Danny don't drown Carrie I mean they, there was a real friendship between them and they were known as, on first names just like the big stars of today that sort of everybody will call them by their first names they thought it was great to know them and they, they really did carry on a fantastic tradition and uh, of course it was very cheap to get in there and they all lived you see along the mall there were a lot of houses and around the market there was a huge tenement of house place there and they all they used to live there and uh, bore there because they didn't move off so they continued on then until I don't know quite what year they opted out but then Paul Bernard uh, no, um, sorry, uh, I'm wrong there. Um, Sarah Kleiser took Kleiser. it over. And she ran it for quite a number of years. But uh, unfortunately, she wasn't really able to get the crowd as the others were. So the Baileys then, there was round the corner in Broad Street, there was a little theatre called the Gary Owen. And I think for about five years, I think that would be sort of during the Great War, they ran little shows there. And it was there that I saw the first of the Bailey shows because, unfortunately, I was too young to see the gaff, which I would have loved to have seen. But I cut my teeth on the stories of it because my father was an actor there. What, what other than the melodramas did they do? What sort of musical shows would they have done? What would the... Well, The Daughter of the Regiment is kind of a musical uh, and Miss Hook of Holland. They're musicals. You see, they only had one person at the piano. Like in those days, there weren't those gorgeous orchestras. And they, don't forget, they were catering for the very, very poor and they couldn't charge very much. And therefore, they upkeep with their costumes. They used to make their own costumes, actually. They, they did everything themselves. All their stage work. Was, it was all their own and each actor had his my father now was a scenic artist he would paint the scenery somebody else would, would uh, put on the, do the props and everything they all had to work together even though, though they were actors they still had to do their job behind and keep the thing going and they would put on uh, all those there was Lord Edward Fitzgerald um, Miles Nagoplin all those old things you know that uh, that uh, the old Irish plays, you know, that that really appealed sort of thing, you see. Sketches. Uh, yeah, Aaron Apogue, uh, anything like that. Uh, there was another beautiful thing, Nulleg, they, they put it on. I forget who that was by, but it was a very good thing. But uh, I didn't see that, but uh, I heard my mother talk about it. But they were fantastic and very dedicated, very dedicated on the stage. Now, as you said, the gaff was a sort of a walking man's oh, theatre. Yes. And in the town as well, in Henry Street, you had the Theatre Royal. Yes, you had the Theatre Royal. Could you describe the difference? Yeah, well, there was a vast difference because the Theatre Royal catered for the, um, the upper class. In those days, Perry Square was the sort of Kensington of Limerick. And the Theatre Royal, you dress going to the Theatre Royal absolutely dressed to the nine the men wore gloves and all that and the women you never went only in evening dress so therefore of course there was a vast difference but there was one actress in the gaff 
and she was fantastic and she was a Rose de Vere. She afterwards went to Hollywood but she was too old to make the grade but she did appear in a few films I believe. But she was taken from the gaff one night when an English actress uh, got ill to play the lead uh, part of Mercia in The Sign of the Cross and she was absolutely acclaimed. But the uh, gentlemen of that time, they daren't tell their wives and mothers that they were at the gap, it was just, but they did go and they loved going, but they had to go incognito. And uh, even the ladies, if a lady wanted to see or slum or do anything like that, she had to borrow a shawl and wear it over her head. It was very, in those days, the poorer class all wore shawls. And uh, usually the servants, a friend of mine in Limerick, her mother had a servant and the servant used to go to the gaff and she would come home with all those wonderful tales. And uh, this friend of mine, who is a very musical person, she's living in Limerick, and she told me that they used to wait up at night for her to come home to tell all the tales of the gaff. And, you know, there was a really something very, 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 very lovable about all. And they, they loved the people and they were kind to the people. I mean, they would throw open, they would do charitable things for the poor and everything. They were terrific. And if anybody was down and out, they were taken on and they were even put on the stage and paid for doing little jobs and just to help them. They were terribly good and terribly kind. There was great rapport between the company there was, and the There was. And, the and, and funnily audience. enough, strange as it may seem, I often heard my, my father... My father, in later years, how I learned so much about it, I met my father in London because he was separated from my mother and uh, I met him when I was in my teens and he had a friend then, uh, Peter Bernard. He would be a brother of Paul Bernard who bought the um, Grand Central. Now, Peter and Daddy at the time were travelling in a, a show called Richard of Bordeaux and, of course, I used to go with them and they would tell me all about the gaff. It was nothing but the things that happened in the gaff, the different people and they had one dress suit between them and about five of them used to wear the dress suit and each would go on in turn and there was a very famous um, singer Mauser Fitzgerald. Now his son is still alive and living here in Limerick and his relatives and he was a fantastic person. He was really a wonderful singer. My father was a ventriloquist, but unfortunately he was the clown that wanted to play Hamlet and he didn't want to be a ventriloquist. He wanted to be a wonderful actor. And strictly speaking, he was a better ventriloquist. So that is uh, what I can tell you about the gaff. The Theatre Royal was by far the most famous of the Limerick theatres. The first Theatre Royal was built at the end of the 18th century by Tottenham Heafy in Cornwallis Street. This building was destroyed by fire at the beginning of the 19th century. In 1841, Joseph Fogarty purchased a plot of ground in Henry Street and on it he built a new Theatre Royal. This was a one-storey building and could accommodate about 1,300 people. The stage was spacious and it was so constructed that it did not seem distant from any part of the house. The Royal staged plays, dramas, comic operas and musical comedies. 
touring companies came from London and played there. Local amateur groups put on pantomimes, concerts and school shows. Boussicot's plays were very popular, as were the Victorian melodramas such as East Lynn and Murder in the Red Barn. The East Limerick gentry held their hunt balls there, and it was used also for political meetings from time to time. On the afternoon of Monday, the 23rd of January, 1922, the Theatre Royal was seen to be on fire. In less than two hours, it was burned to the ground. Jim Kemmy comes from an old Limerick family and is the editor of the Old Limerick Journal. I suppose the mainstay in the musical life of Limerick was the Theatre Royal, undoubtedly. It was built in 1841 and continued for more than 80 years until it was burned down in January 1922. And <clears throat> that's a very interesting um, building and history to study because the whole of Limerick's musical life was contained there. We had a great mix uh, of uh, musical life and musical shows there. For instance, you had plays, variety shows, operas, Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, touring companies, amateur groups, of course, local amateur groups, and, of course, the music hall. It had a long history of music hall tradition in, in Limerick. And uh, as you asked me in the question, the fact that Limerick was a garrison town and had a musical tradition, especially of martial music, pipe bands, um, brass bands, and that, that all contributed to this mix I'm talking about. Uh, and that, that sort of history is shown today in the kind of music sung in pubs in Limerick, kind of music played uh, in concerts and so on. And that is the history of music in Limerick. All those traditions have come together in a very interesting mix of combination and they've all influenced Limerick musical life to the present day. And undoubtedly, the, the Garrison Town and the fact that you had bands playing here, military bands, well, uh, it did influence, the, if I like, the, the cultural formation of music in Limerick. I stand in a land of roses, but I dream of a land of snow, where you and I were happy in the years of long ago. Nightingales in the branches, stars in the magic sky, but I only hear you singing, I only see your smile, I only hear you singing, I only see your smile. Speak, speak. Speak to me, Torah, speak once again and be. Child of my dream, light of my life, angel of love to me. Child of my dream, light of my life, Angel of love to me, angel of love to me. So, somebody has said to me, um, contrary to what you say, that there, there isn't in fact much indication of that type of influence in the popular singing of sort of people in their 40s, 50s in the pubs today, that it's difficult to see the music hall Influence. No, I would disagree profoundly with that. Uh, c certainly, I suppose, Tin Pan Alley and pop music is international and worldwide, 
and it has broken down all sorts of national barriers. That is true. And those kind of songs are still sung in, in Limerick, and as they are sung throughout the world, that kind of music is international, and perhaps you can stop that flood. On the other hand, you'd find, especially amongst the, the, the middle-aged people and older people, indeed amongst the young as well, uh, the old Victorian ballads, Victorian music, all songs, they are still sung in Limerick, especially in the older parts of Limerick, such as the English town and the Irish town areas. In, in the traditional pubs there, I suppose that in the past they were all male pubs, uh, but nowadays that pattern has also changed. But you will find when there is a sing-song there, you will find that the songs sung there are all the Victorian songs. Oh, priest, we can offer a charming variety, far enough for their learning and piety. Still I'd advance you without impropriety, father of Blinners, the flower of them all. Here's a hell to you, father of Flynn, Schleinten, Schleinten, Schleinten again. Powerfulest preacher and tenderest teacher, the kindliest creature in all Donegal. And though quite abiding all foolish frivolity, still in all seasons of innocent jollity, where is the plebe I can claim an equality? At comicality, father, with you. Once the bishop looked grave at your jest, till this remark set him off with the rest. Is it left gaiety, all to the lady? Cannot the clergy be Irishmen too? Here's a hell to you, father of Flynn. Schleinten, Schleinten, Schleinten again. Powerfulest preacher and tenderest teacher, the kindliest preacher in all Donegal. Ah, Father of Flynn, you've a wonderful way with you. All old sinners are wishful to pray with you. All the young children just wild for to play with you. You've such a way with you, Father of Eek. Still in all you're so gentle a soul. Guide of your flock in the grandest control, checking the crazy ones, folks and uneasy ones, lifting the lazy ones on with a stick. Here's a hell to you, Father of Flynn, Schleinten, Schleinten, Schleinten again, powerfulest preacher and tenderest creature, the kindliest creature in all Donegal. But there was another influence as well, perhaps I should have mentioned. That, that is the influence of the rowing clubs in, in Limerick. And the rowing clubs not only rowed, but they also were involved in the social and musical and cultural life of Limerick. And they held concerts, sometimes called smoking concerts there. And these concerts weren't just casual affairs at all. They were very formal affairs where people recited and sang. And they sang those arias from the, the operas I have mentioned and also, you'd find as well, if you looked around them, that in the industrial school here, similar kind of concerts w- went on. And they were, if you like, uh, the popular hits or songs from the operas and popular arias, and I suppose that there would also be lighter operas as well, such as Gilbert and Sullivan. The, the Daily Cat uh, Company travelled here in, in the last century uh, on a reg- regular basis to Limerick, and th- that kind of singing influenced the, the, the ordinary people. 
and I don't really mind or care what people would say that this tradition has not been so in limit, but I have seen very much uh, evidence of it right down to the present time where people sing those songs as their party pieces. And invariably you will, you will find that they're good singers, not just somebody who's called up at all just to, to go through the motions of singing, but people who regard themselves as being fairly good singers, invariably they will sing the songs from the last century, the Victorian music hall songs I have mentioned. Limerick had its own local singers, and these were popular on the boards of the Royal or the Gaff or the Savoy, which was popular for light operas and Sunday concerts. Local historian Kevin Hannan. There was another famous singer, and uh, I suppose he's very, very noteworthy, Frank Lend. He was a baritone, and he ended his life in Limerick. In fact, he's buried in Limerick in the old churchyard of St. Of Munchens. But he had a failing for the bottle at all times, and he presented immense problems to the companies that he was with. And the story is told that on one occasion, uh, the company that he was with, I don't know, the Carol Rosa Opera Company, they were staying at the Imperial Hotel in the, in Catherine Street, and the show was on that Saturday night at the theatre, and they locked Lend in to his room and they took away his clothes. But he contrived to get out and got some kind of a, of a, a bed sheet or something around him, and he went across the road toward the Wires Public House, just across Roger Street, and he got drunk there. And uh, when they discovered that, they had to get him out of it and try and sober him up. But uh, he performed that night flawlessly. But uh, he, despite that fact that he was, a, he, he was a, a bit of a drunk, he was a wonderful singer and could go on any stage in the world at the time. Of course, there were, there were, uh, there were others besides him, too numerous to mention, but uh, I think he was the outstanding personality in, 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 uh, within the past 80 or 100 years. There was Joseph O'Mara. Well, of course there was Joseph O'Mara, another polished performer that uh, went to a number of opera companies and then formed his own opera company. And uh, he lived at Ozenham House in Harstown Street and uh, he gave his farewell concert before he started on his first tour of America from the balcony there. And his voice is reputed to have carried down to Macho Bridge on that occasion. Lots of people testified to the fact that uh, his voice was held at that distance. He was a very powerful baritone. He was also a very wealthy man, a bit like Sir Thomas Beecham, and he could set up his own company, his own opera company. Well, uh, lots of people attached to opera, they were working on a shoestring. The fact that his people were wealthy in, in the bacon curing industry, it wouldn't necessarily follow like that he was a wealthy man. Uh, I don't think there was any instance of where a, an opera company director or owner or promoter ever became very rich. But he had the money to launch it. Oh, he had, of course, he had. Otherwise, he couldn't have done it. There was Catherine Hayes, then. Oh, Catherine Hayes was in, was, in, was in a class by herself. She would have been the Jenny Lind of her time. She was probably the world's foremost soprano in her time and uh, performed all over the world. And uh, I doubt if she ever came back to her native city. And, uh, but she didn't ever forget it. She always spoke about it, even up to her, her death at a very early age. Uh, she's buried, of course, in Kensal Green. All our famous artists they appear to have finished up there. But she was really wonderful, and she was only discovered by accident, as is so well known. She was working as a skivvy uh, next door to the Protestant Bishop's house in, uh, in Henry Street and uh, in the adjoining garden at the Earl of Limerick, on the next house. 
he heard this beautiful singing on a number of occasions and he was captivated by the wonder of her voice and uh, he interviewed her and he used his good offices to have her educated and her voice trained and uh, which and he just turned her into the world's prima donna she her father's a puritive been a bandmaster so probably she derived her musical bent from him a demon plagues me thirst by name but i can circumvent him a glass i fill his power to tame and straight away this present him but rosy light the whole world fills all cares away go My craving still increasing. My Rhine wine drinker's troubles of this is a thirst. There's no appeasing. But I, at last, my heart is wound as a Theatre Royal seems to have been the main focus and the main centre of all of the sort of influences that we're talking about to some extent. It was the place where the operas came, where the plays went on, where the singers and performers came. What in its totality did the Theatre Royal mean to the people of Limerick, do you think? I think the Theatre the theater Royal held, held a very special spot, uh, even in the hearts of the people that never attended there. It was an institution for everybody, even for those who didn't go there. It was much talked about at all times in the shows there from time to time, together with the performers, the performance of some of those who attended during the intervals. It was always a talking point for the, for, for the following week. It was a time before there, were, before there were any other of the modern types of entertainment as we enjoy today, like television and radio and cinema. They had only the, the theatre... And I'm sure there were quite a number of people that would love to have availed the theatre if they had the money to go there. But it wasn't always easy to get enough money in those depressed times to go to the theatre. I suppose uh, over the stage, really, um, you had the, the legend or slogan, all the world's a stage. And that more or less captured uh, what the Theatre Royal meant to the people of Limerick. 
it, it brought uh, variety, it brought plays, it brought music, it brought uh, all sorts of things to the ordinary people of Limerick. Uh, and it, it was a, a great form of escapism in a, in a world without radio, television and so on, with a uh, limited amount of money and so on. You had, uh, I suppose, that the best of the touring companies come in there, the best of the local amateur productions, and that was a great form of escapism for people. It was a great, I suppose, satisfaction to, to have a contact with the outside world and glamour, if you like, ro- romance. It was all brought home to them as well. And as Kevin Hannes mentioned, the, the gods enabled people to be admitted there for a matter of pence or half pence. And to Limerick, a provincial city, uh, perhaps cut off from the main arteries of the world, well, this represented uh, contact with the outside world. It brought home the world, as I say, of story, of romance to them, and they responded uh, to it. And the Theatre Royal in Limerick has continued to linger, linger on in the uh, folklore here and in the affections of people who were born after it was burned down. It's still very much talked about in the musical world of Limerick. And I believe myself that Theatre Royal has formed the musical life of Limerick, has formed a musical culture, that kind of ecumenical mix that is the musical world of Limerick. It owes its origins and its roots to the life of the Theatre Royal in those 80 years between 1841 and 1922 when it burned down. In the 1940s and 50s, the Savoy Cinema became the centre of the musical life of the city. Touring opera companies came, and many singers who later became famous made their debut at the Savoy. Musical comedies and pantomimes were put on and concerts were held there. Vic Loving staged popular melodramas, but it was not really suitable for plays as the auditorium and stage were much too big. Limerick has a rich theatrical and musical tradition, which is well reflected in the popular songs of the people. I stand once again in the Northland, but in silence and in shame. Your grave is my only landmark, and men have forgotten my name. It's a tale that is truer than older, than any the sages tell. I loved you in life too little. I love you in death too well. I loved you in life too little. I love you in death too well. Come, come, come to me, Torah. Come from your heaven above, child of my dream, light of my life, angel of love to me, child of my dream, light of my life, angel of love to me. Angel of love to me.